Hello. Seemingly unabashed that Brexit has heralded the single biggest increase in regulation and bureaucracy that British business has ever seen, the other day, Prime Minister Boris Johnson and several members of his cabinet had a conference call with the captains of UK industry. In the call, we're told the Prime Minister invited business leaders to identify red tape that could now be removed, releasing UK industry to be truly world-beating. Many people, perhaps recalling the failed Beecroft review of regulation from 2012, were sceptical of the government's ability to reduce regulation. But is the very idea that industry benefits from less regulation even correct? Or what about the idea that corporate tax cuts drive investment? These and several other apparent economic truisms are taken apart by my guest today. Welcome to the podcast that tries to make sense of our new reality. This is Bridges to the Future with Matthew Taylor, brought to you by the RSA. I'm delighted to welcome Tom Bergen, who's a financial journalist who's written a wonderful book about economics, about the things that we assume to be correct about economics. Tom, welcome to the programme. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me, Matthew. How are you? How is lockdown treating you? It's not too bad. As an investigative financial journalist, I spend most of my day locked in a room staring at spreadsheets and arcane documents on a screen anyway. So in a way, I am one of the less impacted. So I can't complain too much, but I will certainly be looking forward to, to, to everything being lifted and being able to get out and move more freely around again. So, Tom, I think the first question I want to ask before we get into the book, which is, you know, it's a very kind of tight structure you've got. You have a set of chapters, each of which deals with economic positions which many people will recognise and which many people assume to be common sense, and you take them apart. But before we get into some of those arguments, tell me why you, why you decided to write the book, Tom. Well, Matthew, this book grew very much out of my own experience as an investigative reporter. In around about 2012, I started to examine the area of corporate taxation and I did a series of investigations into the tax planning practices of a number of companies, most famously Starbucks. And I revealed that they had engaged in some quite contrived arrangements and that led to parliamentary inquiry. I also did some investigations into Google, which also led to another parliamentary inquiry. And one of the things that I experienced while Doing this research was like I spoke to a lot of politicians who'd been involved in cutting corporate taxes, reducing the burden on companies, also speaking to the economists that those politicians were really informed by imposing those policies. And I was getting this message, well, you know, the problem here isn't that companies aren't paying tax. The problem is we shouldn't be taxing them in the first place. And that seemed a bit of a dubious truth to me. I thought, well, you know, they've got plenty of money. But the argument was, well, it's going to be reducing their incentive to invest. So, yes, OK, investors might be doing OK. The share prices and earnings were doing OK. But if they had lower taxes, they would invest more. I was a bit sceptical of that, looking at the reality, because as a journalist, I don't just look for correlations and data in the way that economists do. I actually go out and talk to companies. I mean, I contacted every company in the FTSE and I said, look, you've had a big cut in corporate taxation. I did this around about 2013. I said, you know, how is this, you know, how many jobs have you created or saved as a result of this? And nobody came back with any jobs. And also I've done a lot of work in regulation. So I've did a lot of investigations around corporate safety. My previous book 
was about BP and the safety problems there. I also did a lot of research into the Grenfell Tower disaster. And again, they're seeing this issue of the way regulations are often cited by companies as being burdensome, impeding innovation, advancement. But when you really look at it, claim downsides from regulation don't really seem to be these deadweight costs that people claim. So I think basically from my on-the-ground experience of actually reporting on the economy, looking at it and looking how companies function and how individuals behave, it just seemed to me increasingly that the economic theory that was driving a lot of policies, namely reduced taxes in certain areas, reduced regulation in other areas, the intellectual background to that just didn't seem to really be there as I could see it. So I really, it really encouraged me to dig more deeply into this and to try and understand the mechanisms that economists say exist within the economy that allow these policies to have the desired impact. So if you're looking at something like a tax cut on businesses, this isn't meant to work by some magical way whereby a tax cut increases business confidence or it leaves more cash in the bank so that companies can buy a new machine. It's actually meant to create a stimulus and the economy is seen by economists as being like a machine and that if you tweak one lever here, it leads to a, a chain reaction because all these little levers and cogs are connected. What I found was when you look at this, the cogs actually aren't connected in, in reality. The Tweaking in one place doesn't lead to these changes in the intermediate stages. So to claim a correlation between the outcome and the policy change rather stretched, given that the way in which that policy change is meant to impact the outcome doesn't happen. We don't see the changes in the intervening stages. And also one of the things I did in, in all these policy areas was, was look at the history of the development of this truism. So we have these ideas that if you cut taxes, people will work harder. And seven other truisms that I examine in the book. And what's really interesting is the way in which people came, economists came to believe things. You know, when economists, when they looked at the minimum wage, they decided the minimum wage killed jobs on the basis of their understanding of markets not as a result of actually observing the impact of the minimum wage. They had consciously not done that for a long period of time. And when they did in the 1970s and 1980s start to examine the impact of the minimum wage, they just couldn't find the evidence that supported their theory. So what did they do? They ignored the evidence. So, Tom, let me just break in here. It's fascinating what you're saying, but I want to explore this process by which an economic truism embeds itself, despite the evidence to the contrary, in relation to, to some of the particular examples that you give. And let's start with the question of job security and the widely held assumption that if you give people more job security, you make it harder for companies to fire people, that this reduces overall employment in the economy and increases unemployment. That is a widely accepted assumption, but it's one that you want to question. Absolutely. This is one of the damaging economic myths that exists. And it exists because economists are very driven by theory. And theory dictates that anything that imposes on markets, that restricts the functioning of markets, is like a sand in the cogs of the wheel of the economy. So employment protections, such as 
the requirement from, on the part of companies to pay severance, to negotiate severance or give notice, that these items are described as labour market rigidities. They're seen as being bad because they impact with the free functioning of the labour market. And ergo, it's determined that these will lead to higher unemployment. That's the theory. It's the theory that we're told very frequently and that the international organisations like the OECD and the IMF have long put forward. The problem is when economists look at this and try and correlate employment protection and employment levels, they can't find the correlation. So essentially, the data does not support the theory. Now, economists being economists, as opposed to physicists, that doesn't cause them to rethink their ideas. Rather, they come to the conclusion that, oh, the data is wrong or there's some problem with measurement. The reality is that if you are a government and you have got an unemployment problem, and if you go to an economist and you say, I would like to tackle this problem, they'll look at this and say, well, we can see what your problem is. You've got an inflexible labor force. You've got these rigidities. That must be the reason why your unemployment is high, because that restricts the, the functioning of the labor force. And it's because these policies, labor protections, are such a sin against the laws of economics that it strikes the economist as the obvious conclusion or explanation for an unemployment problem. But of course, there can be many, many reasons why unemployment might exist. And Italy, of course, I cite in the book, is a really good example of where the government bought into this idea. Mr. Renzi bought into this idea of the labour force being the problem, that the rigidities were the reason why unemployment was so high. And he bet his whole government on that. And he didn't win. He got those labour force changes through. They didn't have the impact that he, he wanted to have. It didn't bring down employment in a noticeable way. And his unemployment reduction performance was weaker than other countries. And uh, it contributed to his government being replaced by a populist government, which then launched some rather unorthodox economic policies. So this was an example of where someone decided to follow the economic advice and ended up leaving the economy in a worse position than it was previously. So part of the problem, Tom, is that it's not only that people assume a kind of this simple free market based account of the connection between things, but they don't also look for the way in which the evidence could go interestingly different direction. I remember many, many years ago being at a dinner with Adair Turner, and I think he was running the CBI, and him saying, and, and saying, actually saying, I don't want to be quoted on this, because obviously the CBI was arguing a different position. But he said, the fact is, if it's hard to get rid of workers, actually, you invest more in them. You know, you take more care about who you employ, you invest more money in those people, because you can't just throw them out and replace them whenever you want to. And that, he argued... One of the reasons that you had higher productivity in Germany was that you needed to get more out of people because the choice you faced was not get rid of them or improve them because getting rid of them was more difficult. You focused on actually improving their productivity and investing in them. Absolutely. There's lots of survey data to support that. When the Unfair Dismissals Act came into place in the UK, uh, surveys of businesses showed that businesses were taking greater care in recruitment. Uh, German companies frequently say that, that they think quite deeply about whether people fit the job. America has a wonderful reputation as a job creator, but the actual track record isn't as anything like what it appears to be. McKinsey did a wonderful study of this some years ago, really deeply thorough, and it looked at job creation in Europe versus the United States. And Europe's performance 
was much better. But also the interesting thing was that the United States has a lot of turnover in jobs. The people move job much more frequently and that creates an appearance of dynamism. But it, because somebody changes their job twice every year, it doesn't mean you've got two new jobs every year. You still have the same number of jobs. So this is sort of a, a false impression that we can get from activity, but it's not productive busyness. And so, yes, there is lots of evidence that if someone is going to be around or perceive that they're a lot more likely to be around for a longer period, they can invest a lot in their own skills. As you said, yes, the, the employer can also invest more in these people, but also the people can say, well, I'll actually do what's called maybe skill deepening, which is building skills which might be relevant only to that company and only help that company's productivity. And the reason they'll do that and take that trouble is because they expect to be there. However, if the employee envisaged that their tenure would be six months or a year or a short period of time, they may be more focused on gaining skills that they can take someplace else. Of course, that doesn't help their current employer. So I think that there is definitely lots of evidence that goes against the rather simplistic economic logic that dictates much policy. And I think that's really a reflection of the complexity of the world. And why, Tom, is it? I mean, I, in your book, you explain why economists have ended up with this view, the triumph of neoclassical thinking, the incredible influence of a relatively small number of economists, some of whom were pretty cavalier in their use of evidence. But a part of this also is business organisations themselves who parrot this stuff. And it's not clear to me whether they do that just because they're kind of lazy or because they too share the same ideological assumptions. Giles Wilkes, who's a former number 10 and Bayes business department advisor, who's very well worth following on Twitter. And I noticed he tweeted the other day, in the light of that Boris Johnson event, that conference call, he said, my first day as a special advisor, a well-known business organisation slapped down on my desk a list of 100 regulatory problems for members. Hooray, I thought, actual content. Leafing through, about 98 were variants on, I find it tiresome having to make arrangements for pregnant staff. So, you know, is it that just business organisations are, are lazy, they're ideologically right-wing, or are they made up of people who have the same economic myopia as many economists? I think that to see all financial transactions in the world as a series of supply and demand curves is incredibly straightforward. It's appealing in that regard. So if we see transactions in that way, then of course we'll see regulations as being problematic. And that's a sort of self-evident truth. And that's indeed, you mentioned earlier, Adrian Beecroft's review. And of course, he famously claimed that if his review was put in place, it would lead to a 5% increase in GDP. And he was asked where that figure came from. And he had to confess that this came from conversations with people rather than any analysis. And his claim was that the reduction in employment protection in that case would, would lead to higher employment was self-evident. He didn't see the need to actually offer any evidence or data. And I think that is a problem that people genuinely believe that this attractively simple perception of the economy is accurate. And politicians like it too. One is they see, oh, we can do something. You know, a lot of the answers that even businesses will tell you about what it is that will make business more successful in the future will be quite long-term things. It might be better education, better access to markets internationally, you know, IP protection in China, if it's in the United States, lower healthcare costs, lower drug costs, because in the United States, of course, businesses carry these costs. So these are all things that are really complicated to solve. They're very long-term, certainly beyond the term of any one government. So you can see if someone says, well, yeah, 
if you cut taxes on business, by the end of the year, you'll have higher investment and higher employment, you know, which is more attractive to you as a, as a policymaker. You know, the latter one offers you the potential that you can you know, wave some statistics in the air to voters and say, I've made a difference. Well, let's look at this corporate tax issue then, Tom, because that, I mean, that's particularly interesting from a UK perspective, because, of course, when it comes to cutting corporation taxes, part of a strategy to increase investment and boost the economy, the UK has kind of been in the vanguard of that. And there was a time in other countries, in the US, for example, commentators were praising the UK for the success of our corporate tax cutting strategy, a strategy which we're still adhering to. But here again, in your book, you want to say, hold on, could we just for a moment look at actually what happens in the real world? Absolutely. This was a situation where the UK blazed a trail. And I think it's also interesting that the trail was one that was not necessarily blazed at the outset, but started certainly by a Labour government. Gordon Brown repeatedly cut corporate taxes with a stated aim to make the UK more competitive and allow it to have a lower tax rate than its partners. Now, the Conservative Lib Dem coalition in 2010 came in and accelerated that, but it's been something that's across the political divide. And this is like a lot of issues that I discuss in the book. What we can see is that actually economists of the left are associated with policymakers of the left, as well as those of the right, have actually advocated these false truisms, false faith articles of economics. And yes, the corporate taxation is one of the big ones. And this is a situation where people argue that taxes on business are especially burdensome on the economy because it's just they operate at the coalface and they dull the activity right where it's, it's most important. And so the idea was that if you reduce the taxation on businesses, on corporate profits, you will make more money available for investment. Now, the way in which that's specifically meant to happen is through a reduction in the cost of capital, basically by making investment in equipment, in hard assets and production more rewarding, that more capital would be diverted towards business. That's the theory. And it goes through a few chains, but that's essentially the theory. Now, people can look at correlations between investment and GDP and try and look at that. But the interesting thing is when you look at these intermediate stages, we do see that definitely if you cut the corporate tax rate, you will have an increase in the net return. You can see this in the United States when it was done overnight. It was particularly obvious, but it also happened here. And it happened here, but similar amounts, but years earlier than the United States. And you saw that the, the rates of return, the net rates of return received by investors increased, but we didn't see new investment. And when you actually look at businesses and talk about this in analyst calls, the end of each reporting quarter, the business people, like the chief executives who had been arguing for these tax cuts, will explain very clearly why they're not going to do this because they don't want to reduce their hurdle rate. So this whole idea that by reducing taxes, you lead to a wave of new investment because the hurdle rates will be taken down. It's not something that's happened in the United States. It's not something that happened here. The Bank of England looked at at this over a long period of time, they saw the businesses did not reduce their hurdle rates for investments in line with reductions in the cost of capital. The hurdle rate is the level of profitability you're predicting, yeah, is that right? Absolutely. So the idea is that if somebody's looking for a 15% return on investment, that they'll invest a certain amount. But that if the rate of return they're happy to accept drops down to 12%, that might be reduced because the net return stays the same because the tax rate has been reduced. But now a lot of investments that previously were not profitable 
are suddenly profitable on a net basis, and therefore people will invest more and will have new business creation. The problem is none of that happens. You can try and find you can find correlations in anything, and that's one of the things I look at in the book. That this is a thing that financial professionals joke about all the time. You can link stock market returns to sunspots, and people can find periods. And economists do this very frequently because there's a real correlation game that goes on in economic research. They might say, okay, we've had this tax cut and corporate tax cut, and we've had this strong growth in GDP. But you know, if the intermediate steps don't exist, you really can't correlate those two and claim any causal link. And so what I've tried to do is to, to examine the causal link in these situations. And as I said, you just can't find the causal link between investment and the rates of return. Now, on the other hand, we do see huge linkages between investment rates and other metrics. So what I'm saying is that the theory that has driven policy over the past 20 years, over the past recent years in the United States and the past 15 years, in particular in the United Kingdom, it's just the wrong theory for how investment works. Yeah. And what's great about the book, Tom, is that you, it isn't simply that you say, well, look, Proposition A isn't true. You explore what is really going on. And for example, when it comes to this issue of corporate investment, it turns out that companies don't want to invest in less profitable activities simply because tax has made them slightly more profitable because they think as a business, you know, it's problematic having less inherently profitable activities. And also that demand is incredibly important and they won't invest in things if they don't see that there is underlying demand in the economy. And as I read about this, you know, I thought, well, yes, those actually are much more compelling arguments. Now that takes me to why we're in this position because, I mean, I was going to talk to you about other arguments here, but, you know, for example, the perhaps an argument that at last fewer people do accept, which is the notion that executive pay drives performance. But there are several chapters in your book and you systematically take apart these ideas. But of course, the question we then have to ask is why have we got to this position? Why is it that so much of the economics profession has been involved in this kind of reductive neoclassical project of trying to understand everything through the kind of mythology of a perfect market and people following very simple purely economic or purely financial incentives. So explain that to us, Tom, to explain the deterioration of economics as a way of understanding the world. I think, you know, first of all, I'd say in terms of the deterioration of economics, it's not just me saying this. This is something that many economists, many eminent economists, Nobel Prize winning economists, both of the left and right, have complained about. And this is the regress in some case of economics, people like Paul Romer and Ronald Coase have uh, raised this issue. And I think that one of the key reasons that this has arisen is because economists usually don't start with the real world as it is. Empirical work in economics, largely uh, over the recent decades, has involved drilling into data sets through a framework, the neoclassical framework, as you mentioned, for explaining the world. And that leads one to cherry pick the correlations which support one's thesis uh, and leads one to situations whereby policymakers or sorry, economists would claim that a change in policy has led to millions of people changing their behavior, even though those economists haven't found a single individual who has changed their behavior in that way, which to somebody like a journalist who you know, focuses on actually you know, looking at the real world and explaining it, it finds amazing. So... 
the problem is unlike something like physics or chemistry, where you start with the materials and the world that you're observing and seeing how it behaves, economists start with theory. That's one of the problems. I think also there is a self-interest one. And economists, Paul Romer, the Nobel Prize winning economist said to me, you know, economists took great pleasure in telling people that obvious things were not true. And this ability to offer what are in some ways counterintuitive facts makes economists, one, feel smart, telling people counterintuitive things make all of us feel smart, but also it makes them influential because economists do hold a very privileged position in the world whereby they're consulted on policy. In the book, I mentioned the example of Steve Mnuchin, the U.S. Treasury Secretary, who when he talked about Greta Thunberg, the environmental campaigner, he said that she should, if she really wanted to help the environment, she should go off and study economics. And the idea that you can be the, the source of the answer to the world's biggest problems is incredibly attractive. And it does mean that you are invited into the room for conversations. And by seeing the world in a simplistic way of the supply and demand curves and by just ignoring really most of the factors that drive our decision-making. Price signals are not the only things, as important as they sometimes might be. It is just one of very many factors that influence our decision-making. But if you do focus on price signals, it allows you to come up with clear answers and also specific answers. And that makes you, you know, interesting to policymakers. So I think that has contributed to economists often being somewhat lazy and less rigorous than they should be in their work and and really operating in a way that is not one that is followed by other sciences while claiming to have the status of a science. Now, you see, it's interesting to me, Tom, that you say that because you said counterintuitive. I mean, I think that one of the reasons why neoclassical economics has achieved this kind of intellectual hegemony is because it seems so often to be common sense. It's reductive. It's a kind of, you know, the notion that we're all driven by financial interests and that we have simple incentive structures is one which can be explained quickly. People can understand it. They can get their head around it. So I, it's also interesting to me that you talk about other areas of study. I'm going to share with you my way of thinking about this issue, Tom, which is that I'm a sociologist. And I think that, that something kind of catastrophic really happened in the academy in the kind of post-war era, particularly in the kind of 1970s. When I was at university, it wasn't the case that most economists were kind of neoclassical. Economists understood the problems of the market. They understood that markets went wrong. And at the same time, sociologists weren't all very left-wing and didn't all view society as basically a system of oppression. There were sociologists, functionalists, for example, who were interested in the way society worked and thought that societies were, broadly speaking, moving forward. But then something happens. And what happens is that the economists all become kind of right-wing, neoclassical and reductive, and the sociologists all become left-wing, all adopt highly kind of theoretical views of the world, which ordinary people find almost impossible to understand. And I think that the problem here, in a way, is a failure of social science. That if you go to universities in this country around the world, you will have an account of human beings and human behaviour and human motivation in the psychology department, which is a million miles from that in the sociology department, which is a million miles from that in the economics department. 
And so you're a social science faculty where students are coming in and getting completely different account of the nature of human beings, their motivations in the world, depending randomly on which subject they've chosen. So, I mean, I think in all the kind of people that we want to blame for the things that you describe here, for the, the mistakes of economics and the disastrous impacts they've had on policy, I want to, I'm going to name a small group that not, doesn't normally get named. That's the deans of social science faculties. You know, I think they should have forced social scientists from different disciplines into a room and said, you're not leaving this room until there is some coherence and there is some idea that students coming into this faculty will, will have some consistency in what they're hearing about human beings. What do you think of that idea, Tom? I think there's a lot of sense to that in that economists have said to me that economic thinking can be very much influenced by and is indeed very much influenced by the politics of the day. Now, that, in a way, okay, well, people might think, well, okay, that's, um, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, lots of our thinking has influenced uh, the political thinking of the day. But really, in the science, well, that's not the way it should work. If physics or chemistry was or biology was in, impacted by the politics of the day, I mean, one thinks of the uh, Stalin's a geneticist who thought that genes could be taught traits. I mean, that's an example of politics influencing science. It doesn't really help feed your population. So I think one of the problems was that in the 1970s, there was a crisis of confidence in the Western world. You know, some can link it, you know, to the 1973 oil shocks. I think there are more deep-seated issues that arose. But this wonderful, wonderful growth period that we had in the, in the post-war period that was really quite unusual, you know, where we had 3 4% average annual growth rates began to slow and we had high inflation. So people were quite disorientated. And that led across populations in the United States and also in the UK. So it led to a shift in governments. We saw Ronald Reagan being elected in the United States saying government is the problem. And we saw Margaret Thatcher being elected here in the United Kingdom saying very much the same thing. And this really had an influence in university campuses and it created a demand really for papers which proved or claimed to prove that markets function very efficiently and that the hand of government was a fell hand. So any kind of regulation or any intervening in markets was going to be inherently harmful. And that was intuitive to people. One of the quotes I give in the book is from Carl Rove, the, the strategist who helped George W. Bush be elected. And his previous claim to fame was getting a, a Republican into the Texas governorship for the first time in, in about 100 years. And, you know, he, he notes about the way that people's, the average American's mindset shifted from a perception that Wall Street big corporations were ripping off the little guy to the fact that the government was the problem getting in the way of big corporations helping the economy move forward. And that influenced, you know, economists because they could see that there was a demand for certain kinds of research and more pro-government types of paper were less in favour. So I think, you know, in a way, there was an, an example of supply and demand at play, and that was in the economics departments. And I agree that the authorities that oversaw these, you know, the senior figures in economics should have looked at that. And that is something very much that is, it's not discussed as much as it should be, but as I say, Paul Romer is somebody who's made himself tremendously unpopular. Yeah, is it changing? That was going to be my last question to you, Tom. I mean, it, you know, Students now going into economics departments around the world, are they getting a richer, more diverse diet than neoclassical economics? I'm not sure, to be honest. So you've got different views on this. One of the people that I 
spoke to researching the book was David Card, who did some great research on the minimum wage, really groundbreaking research with Alan Kruger in the, in the early and mid-1990s. And he told me, he was very optimistic about the future of economics, saying that in his area, labor economics, that, that very much the work now was empirical and in the real sense of people looking at how companies and, and businesses operate. But I'm not sure. Ronald Coase, who was a bastion of the Chicago School of Economics, lamented in his later years, he lived to be over 100, he had wonderful kind of experience in the development of economics. And he lamented what he called blackboard economics. He said the problem was that economics had become obsessed with price and it really reduced itself to price theory. And he advised economists to get out and actually look at the world. But he said, that's not what economists do. So I have to say that I really haven't seen enough evidence that economics departments have changed. It's true, the Chicago School is not what it used to be in terms of being so ideological. But you know, when surveys are done nowadays of economists, and they're asked, they're thinking on, on the big issues of the day, or the classical issues, or the kinds of theories that I discuss in the book, realistically, there's not that much deviation from the broad principles which have held within the profession over recent decades. Well, that's a great way to end because it underlines the importance of your book, Free Lunch Thinking, How Economics Ruins the Economy. And I'd recommend it strongly to anybody who has anyone in their life who is an irritating economist or would-be economist who is fond of parroting truisms, read this book and you'll be able to deal with it when they come along and say to you something like, we must cut red tape in order to boost investment. Tom, thanks for writing the book and thanks for appearing on Bridges to the Future. Thank you, Matthew. My pleasure. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.